this podcast from Jubilee Church Derby, a church family looking to make a difference across the city of Derby and beyond. This is a message from one of our Sunday celebrations, and you can find out more about Jubilee by visiting our website at www.jubilee.org.uk. Yeah, is it good? Excellent. Right, I'm just going to put some things down so that I'm not holding them all the morning. Otherwise, that's going to... Right. So, uh, this morning, we're going to be looking at 2 Corinthians 7, 1 to 16. So, if you uh, have a Bible with you and you want to try and find that, um, you've got a few moments before I actually read it, so you'll be fine. You should, should be able to find it. 2 Corinthians 7, 1 to 16. So... I'm going to start off with a question, which is what I usually do, um, and they're normally slightly odd, so um, hopefully it'll make sense by the end of it. Uh, Here we go. So what is your biggest regret? Um, Now, it might be uh, foolish to assume that there'd be anybody in this room that's free from any kind of regret, whether it's kind of big or, you know, just little. You regret that you said something stupid this morning and it made someone upset. From that to uh, something else, I suppose. Um, We've all done and said things that we might regret, Um, or it may be that we've not done something or um, that we've not said something that we now regret. So um, what I thought would be good is to look at what regret means. Uh, The Collins Dictionary says, if you regret something that you've done, you wish you had not done it. Wow, that was profound. Um, Regret is to be or feel sorry about, to feel remorse about, to be upset about or grieve or lament for something. And according to psychology today, regret is a negative cognitive or emotional state that involves blaming ourselves for a bad outcome, feeling a sense of loss or sorrow at what might have been, or wishing we could undo a previous choice that we have made. So as we go through life, it's pretty hard to not have moments or reasons for regret. Most of us will at some point, if not frequently, depending on how good we are at making poor choices, we'll have situations in our lives that cause us to look back and regret. It will be the what if I'd or what if I hadn't moments of life. Um, We can all make these wrong decisions. We can all misunderstand moments in our lives, think they're something and they're not. And sometimes they have serious consequences. They can affect our lives ongoingly and we have to deal with the aftermath. And regret can then become something that erodes our progress Uh, erodes our sense of worth and actually stops us becoming all that God's called us to be and created us to be. And what's interesting is that when I was looking at the different definitions of regret, none of them were particularly positive. None of them um, were, in fact, all of them were definitely negative. But today I've been given the title, A Good Kind of Regret. Um, And it looks, uh, so the passage we're going to look at looks at that subject rather than a negative one. So let's look at this passage and see what we can learn from it. So it's 2 Corinthians 7, 1 to 16. And it says, Therefore, since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. Make room for us in your hearts, We have wronged no one, we have corrupted no one, we have exploited no one. 
I do not say this to condemn you. I have said before that you have such a place in our hearts that we would live or die with you. I have spoken to you with great frankness. I take great pride in you. I'm greatly encouraged. In all our troubles, my joy knows no bounds. For when we came into Macedonia, we had no rest, but we were harassed at every turn. Conflicts on the outside, fears within, but God, who, comf- who comforts the downcasts, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort you had given him. He told us about your longing for me, your deep sorrow, your ardent concern for me, so that my joy was, never great- was greater than ever. Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point you have proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter. So even though I wrote to you, it was neither on account of the one who did the wrong, nor on the account of the injured party, but rather that before God you could see for yourselves how devoted to us you are. By all this we are encouraged. In addition to our own encouragement, we were especially delighted to see how happy Titus was, because his spirit has been refreshed by all of you. I had boasted to him about you, and you had not embarrassed me. But just as everything we said to you was true, so our boasting about you to Titus has proved to be true as well. And his affection for you is all the greater when he remembers that you were all obedient receiving him with fear and trembling. I am glad I can have complete confidence in you. So, the title is A Good Kind of Regret, and actually that reflects a central part of this passage. And I actually thought it would be good to actually just quickly look again at the the verses that it's really focusing in on, which are verses 8 to 12. So I'll quickly read those again so that we've got them fresh in our mind, because it's quite a long passage, and there's quite a lot in it. So these are the bits that um, were picked out, really. So verse 8, Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you, what earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point, you have proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter. So even though I wrote to you, it was neither on account of the one who did the wrong nor on the account of the injured party, but rather that before God, you could see for yourselves how devoted to us you are. So one of the things that I realized as we read that through and hadn't put in my notes was a reminder that 
Paul, we, we've been going through Corinthians. There's, there's, two, there's two sections to Corinthians, 1 and 2 Corinthians. They're letters that Paul wrote to a specific people at a specific time. We've talked about that over these last uh, through um, series of preaching series. Um, and so Paul here is re- referring to his previous letter and saying that it caused regret, or it, it caused him regret because he wrote it and it made them, um, and it hurt them. So he's now writing again in response to the, um, what happened after that letter arrived. Um, so that's what we're looking at this morning. And basically, our starting point here, what we should remember, is that Paul sees himself as a father figure, and that's his relationship towards the church in Corinth. That's how he feels towards them. He thought of them as his dear children in 1 Corinthians 4:14. Now, we know that Paul wasn't married, and he didn't have his own children. Um, so naturally, he's referring to the Corinthians as spiritual children and not his own um, natural children. But as a father... Um, Paul felt compassion towards them and he was passionate for the, the disciples in Corinth. He desired for them to be a good, good witness for the gospel. And Paul felt that to serve them the best and so that they could be all that God designed them to be, one of his parental duties was to point out error or areas of sin or rebellion so that they could grow as disciples of Jesus. So immediately what we can see is that this passage will have natural implications for the parents in the room. But what about those of us that aren't parents or may never be parents? What can we all learn from this passage? Well, as I've just said, Paul saw himself as a parent or father figure to the Corinthians. And in the same sense, any of us can be a parent, a spiritual parent to others. Any of us can be someone that others can look to for advice or counsel or wisdom. And any of us can decide to take another under our wing and offer wisdom and care and love. Actually, I'd argue that we are all called to be this, to be fathers and mothers to those amongst us in our church community. That we're called to be those that give wise counsel, that bring challenge, but that we do that with love. And sometimes this will mean that we need to confront attitudes or behaviours of others, especially if they're, they might have dangerous or long-term impacts in their lives. Now, Elizabeth is my daughter. You might have seen her. I don't think she's here anymore. Uh, I think she's gone downstairs. Um, but Elizabeth, like many children, loves to open and look in cupboards. And there's a particular food cupboard at home that she really loves to look in and take things out of. It's got cans and packets of food in it, and she likes to take them out. And sometimes she'll even put them back, which is great. This can cause a mess or an obstruction in the kitchen and we often have to tell her to put things back in it and close the door and leave it alone, repeatedly in fact. And the other evening, one of the reasons we do that is became apparent. Elizabeth was tired and wasn't listening to us telling her to stop playing in the cupboard. And unfortunately, she'd just taken her shoes and socks off and was fiddling with the cans when one of them toppled off out of the cupboard and fell on her foot. And obviously, she was upset. And... Um, during the process of comforting her, we had to explain again that one of the reasons we tell her not to play in the cupboard is because she's going to get hurt if something falls out of it, Um, but that she wouldn't listen. And, okay, this is a silly example, but it's a lesson for her, and she'll probably continue to learn it for a while until she realises that keeping the door closed is probably the better option. Uh, Anyway, Um, so 
Paul didn't enjoy bringing discipline to his children, uh, verse 8. But he made a decision that in the long run, it was better for him to confront them. And sometimes it's best for us to cross our children's worlds or um, to enforce rules, to put in boundaries for their own good. And in our culture, often parents fail to see this um, as a price that's worth paying. One commentator said that we end up with a situation where parents obey children rather than the other way around. The Scottish reformer John Knox, who's a, who became a leader in the Protestant church in Scotland, reported to confess to Mary, Queen of Scots, I can scarcely well abide the tears of my own boys, whom my own hand corrects, but I must sustain, albeit unwillingly. It can be really hard to make our children cry or to upset them when we bring discipline. And sometimes it seems easier to let them have their own way and just get on with it. And yet, sometimes it is easier. The Bible also says, Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. This is Ephesians 6 verse 4. And again, actually, this Paul writing again. And in that context, he's speaking specifically to fathers in that community. But unfortunately, mothers and fathers both uh, can be more than capable of demeaning our children, can constantly nag. We can be degrading, neglectful, or abusive with our words and actions. Um, and even if that's not the case, we can still cause our children to get cross and upset if we are forever not giving them space to be who they are. We've all disappeared. That's fun. don't know why that happened. You can still hear me. Excellent. Well, hopefully someone can sort the lights. Ah. Um, feels very odd talking to a dark room. Um, right. Paul here in this passage is calling us to bring them up in the faith. And we should be really careful that we don't exasperate our children provoke them to anger by the way that we treat them. When we do bring discipline, though, we can take solace and encouragement from what Paul says here. He lists the long-term fruits that come from discipline. And Paul insisted that godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. That's in verse 10 of what we've read. Often it can feel really cruel to uh, bring discipline, uh, and sometimes it feels like Sparing the child from that can feel like the most loving thing. But actually, sometimes in the long run, it's more important to bring discipline and correction where it's necessary. However, at the moment, I want to remind you of Proverbs 13, 24. It's talk, it talks here about a refusal to correct being an omission of love. If we love, we must discipline and train diligently and appropriately with love and wisdom. This is a huge challenge in today's society. Any form of discipline appears to be negative. But the Bible is clear. A refusal to discipline, which is appropriate for their age, circumstance, and the severity of error, is, a, is withholding love. It's abusive. It's, not, it's abusive not to discipline. But we should never assume that the Bible gives us license to beat or abuse our children. The Bible is really clear about that although there are many terrible warnings from parents who do throughout the Bible if we read them. The issue here at the heart of what Paul is talking about was, was that the Corinthians were being stubborn, complacent and unruly. 
and that they were actually in danger of following a different gospel. When Paul brought his rebuke, rather than it causing them to sort of spiral out of control, it made them earnest, eager, alarmed, indignant with sin and ready to act on it. So we need to be careful here that discipline isn't separate from tender love and devotion. If done without love, care and the best interest of the child or the person at heart, it's just as ungodly. Love isn't just about feelings. It's what we say and what we do. We were given a great little storybook for Elizabeth, which basically explains what love is. It's called All These Things. It's worth a read, and it's pretty fast, because it's aimed to a 0-4-year-old, so it wouldn't take you long. Basically, it's saying that love is more than hugs. Love is sharing, obeying, kindness, and gratitude. Love isn't just an emotion or a feeling. Sometimes and some, it's actually something that needs expression. It's just as much action and speech. Love is speaking life. It's affirming others. Verse 3 says that Paul would live or die for the Corinthians or with them. Verse 4 says that he takes great pride in them. So it's important when we do bring discipline or correction that the person that we're doing that with knows we love them, that we care deeply for them, that we really truly do want the best for them. If not, then we're not building, if we've not spent time building relationship with them, if we've not spent time building trust and communicated love with them, then they'll only see the challenge and not our love for them. And actually that leads to the opposite of what we want. That leads to a relationship breakdown. It doesn't lead to restoration or life change. So we're saying, yes, do challenge, but be cautious how we communicate that challenge. In our discipline, in our discipling of others, we want to allow space for God to move. We want to give him space and give space for our words to challenge and to bring life change. And the life change is God's responsibility. Ours is to show love. It's to be there, to be a rock. It's to demonstrate his love, his compassion, his grace. If the way that we challenge, if the way that we discipline, if the way that we bring correction doesn't leave space for God to transform their heart, if there's no space for change in behaviour, then we aren't doing it right. It's going to be part of the problem, not the solution. And Paul used words of real affection and love, of encouragement and affirmation in this passage. When was the last time you spoke words of affirmation over your own children or those you feel God has given you a fathering or mothering role to? If you're worried you haven't communicated this enough, the likelihood is you haven't. In the long run, this is going to impact or impair our effectiveness. It's important to remember that the things we say have massive impact. That a careless word can shape or misshape someone's reality for years to come. I've got a story about that. It's a it's about a lady called Justine Sacco, who was a PR executive for a large media company, who in 2013 sent out an inappropriate and actually racist tweet moments before she left on a 12-hour flight to South Africa. It was sent out to her personal Twitter account, and she only had 170 followers. So what we can probably assume from that is that 
it was an inappropriate joke between friends or followers. However, by the time her plane landed 12 hours later, the tweet had garnered the attention of several media outlets and more and more Twitter users were expressing outrage. Not only that, but the company that she worked for had already publicly promised to take appropriate action against her. Um, if you didn't read between the lines, they fired her. It took just 12 words for Sacco to completely change her life. Now, that's a lesson in the perils of social media and saying things that you shouldn't say to the whole world. Um, but it's also revealing that words have power. Now, I've got a little um, note here of a way of helping us to think about uh, what we say. Before you speak, think. So T is, is it true? H is, is it helpful? I is, is it inspiring? N is, is it necessary? And K is, is it kind? So that's think. People live up to what the most important person in their lives or the most important people in their lives speak over them. And parents come pretty high in that list for a child. Paul was quick to let the Corinthians know how he saw them. He sees their innocence, their devotion, their encouragement, their obedience and their reliability. Now, given what we've read and what we've learned during this series and previous ones, this description of the Corinthians should challenge us. Why is that? Well, Paul could easily have listed a huge list of faults, and many of those faults that you could easily find written in Corinthians weren't really that minor. But Paul sees them through the eyes of God's grace. He points to the way God sees them. And he continues with that picture of them until they live up to it. So my question at this stage is, what difference would seeing ourselves through God's eyes make to us? What difference would seeing our children through God's eyes make? What difference would seeing those we are discipling through God's eyes make? I can kind of answer that one for you. A massive difference. It's not just going to change how we see people, it's also going to change how they see themselves. If our children or those we're discipling, if all they hear is that we're disappointed, that they could do better, that they are useless, what do you think that the effect will be? Okay, for a few, that might help them change. But in reality, most will feel defeated, hopeless, downtrodden, useless. So we need to develop a way of thinking about those that we have authority for, those we care for, those we parent, so that they can see themselves from the father's point of view. In essence, the heart of discipline should be a restoration of God's original design and intent for their lives, and a restoration of God's original intention. It's not about wishful thinking. We're not asking God, sorry, we are asking God for, for help to see his original intent and design in others. And then we help them understand how God sees them and how we therefore see them. We'll need help with that. This isn't always natural. As we begin to hear God's heart, it will become easier but it requires us to spend time with our Heavenly Father. It requires us to listen to his heartbeat. And the only way you can hear a heartbeat is to be close. The more we do this, the easier it will be. King Solomon said, death and life are in the power of the tongue. 
Remember that every day we are shaping reality for someone by the words that we use over them. In reality, the choice is ours. How will our words impact others? A well-known speaker, Michael Hyatt, says the, the right word at the right time can make all the difference in building people up. So choose well. Studies show that over time, it's not our bad decisions that we regret the most. It's actually the missed opportunities that we don't take. If this is correct, in reality, this can actually help us move forward more courageously in the future. We're more likely to regret missing opportunities than the mistakes we make along the way, and mistakes are often inevitable. Actually, when we look back, it's the mistakes we learn from, it's the mistakes we laugh about, it's the mistakes that we talk, tell others funny stories about. They're often the ones that are shared, not hidden. Paul says he took no pleasure in grief that his letter caused. But he, but he rejoiced in the outcome, that they repented, that they had a change of heart. This made him rejoice. And Paul is talking about a godly kind of grief or regret. And that kind of regret leads to repentance. It brings about positive results. So clearly there are two kinds of regret. There's a worldly kind of regret and a godly kind. Verse 10. The worldly kind leads to remorse. It leads to sorrow for the things that we've done in the past. But it doesn't go any further than that. It remains in remorse. It remains powerless to do anything else. There's no accompanying change of heart or mind. There's no willingness in reality to change behavior. In verse 11, we see Paul reminding them about the outworking of godly grief in their case. Paul talks about the fact that his letter was severe, but that it produced a deep sense of shame and repentance. He talks about a deterioration of their relationship with him and the state of affairs in their church. But the result of his letter was an energetic and zealous action to clear themselves and restore this friendship. So Paul's letter caused action which was pleasing to God. The, Bible's a, the Bible is, uh, there's numbers of examples of, bibli of grief um, that's, of a biblical sort, or a godly sort. Um, King David, 2 Samuel 12, 13, and uh, also in Psalm 51. Paul himself, in Acts 9, 1 to 22. And then there's also examples of worldly regret. Esau, in Genesis 27, 1 to 30, and Hebrews 12, 15 to 17. And also Judas, Matthew 27, 3 to 5. During my study for this preach, I came across a lady called Bronnie Ware who had written a book about her time uh, in an end-of-life hospice where she used to work. And the book reflects on many of the very conversations she had. And one of the things that she wrote about was the five things that people that were in her care wished that they could, or things that they looked back on. I wish I had the courage to live a life true to myself, not the life others expected of me. I wish I hadn't worked so hard. I wish I had the courage to express my feelings. I wish I'd stayed in touch with my friends. I wish I'd let myself be happier. The majority of these regrets boil down or center around a misunderstanding of what's really important in life. Many of the biggest regrets are actually muddled priorities that, and the fact that they no longer have any time to make or change their choices. Our title this morning, A Good Kind of Regret, 
the, the, point of, the point of this message is that we can actually learn from regret. Regret can be a good thing if we use it wisely. If all we do is agree that most people regret those things at the end of their life, if the list doesn't make us look afresh at our own lives, if we don't reevaluate our own priorities, if it doesn't make us think about our choices, uh, what is the highest value, what are the things that we are valuing, then we've missed something. Every season changes things that are important. There'll be different things that are important in our lives. And the things that we thought were important may not stand the test of time or later scrutiny. Some things we currently value, whether that's intentionally or unintentionally, may in the long run be the very things we regret in the future. If these lists and, the, and what we look at this morning, if it doesn't cause us to sit up and think, if no reevaluation happens, then we've missed something. Regret can only be positive. It's at its most valuable when we're learning, when we're correcting, when we're refocusing our lives on the things that really are important. When it's used to pursue a new course, to correct the course we're on, then it's useful. Dr. Melanie Greenberg states that regret tends to be dangerous mentally and physically when we have little opportunity to change the situation. So regret has one of two consequences. It can propel us into life change, or it can propel us into a deep, dark spiral. When we have a second chance to put something right or to get something right, regret can give us great success. Are you living with regret this morning? Do you feel like there's no opportunity to change the situation? You need to bring this to God because it will eventually bring you down. I actually felt like it would be really important to pray for people that feel like they're living with regret. If you're battling in this area, um, could I ask you to raise your hand if you feel like you're, you're struggling with regret? whether that's something that's happened a long while ago or just recently. I'd love to pray for you now. Lord, I just want to ask that for anyone in this room that is living with regrets, that they feel they can do nothing about, would you come and break in this morning? Would you show them your hand on their heart, on their lives, in those moments, in those situations? Would you show them the way through to forgiveness for themselves and others where that's needed? Would you give them your Holy Spirit to enable them to use this regret to turn to you and to bring about change in their lives? When our hearts are broken by the consequences of our actions, we can repent and turn around and change and make a fresh start. That's what Jesus gives us. He gives us this option, this ability. When regret becomes the impetus to deliver us from the path we are on, when it helps us to turn afresh to Jesus, when it causes us to seek his face afresh, when it brings hope for change and restoration for a new start, we experience, that's when we experience, that's when we gain the positive value of regret. Regret can help us to be different next time. It can become the, the impetus to act differently in the future. If in a certain situation we know we reacted badly or we weren't the best version of ourselves, we can take this on board, we can learn from it, 
And when that situation comes around again, it gives us the opportunity to change, to engage with our past and to learn for the future. Regret can also remind us that opportunities don't last forever and don't come around all the time. Pete Wilson, a preacher, once said, the opportunity of a lifetime has to be seized in the lifetime of that opportunity. Don't be afraid of making mistakes. That's not what people regret the most. Be afraid of missing a chance to do what you were created to do. So what have we said? Effectively, in summing up, we've said that regret can be the thing that causes us to reevaluate or change. It can bring us to repentance. A good kind of regret can cause us to turn to Jesus. And that good parenting involves good and appropriate discipline and training. I felt that it would be great this morning if we could pray for anybody that feels like they're battling with regret or situations from the past that are holding them back from moving on or from taking the, making the most of the opportunities that are presented before them. I've thought it would be good to pray for those that want to move on, that want to recommit their lives to Jesus, that want to commit their lives to Jesus this morning. I also felt it would be good to pray for those that are fearful to step out into new things, that are fearful for making the most of opportunities that are presented to them. And also, if you've been presented with a great opportunity and you're not really sure how to handle it or what to do, then we'd love to pray for you as well. So, um, John, can you help us with that? If the band are able to come, that would be really good. Lord God, thank you that you give us regret that can cause us to change our lives. Lord God, thank you for what we learned from Paul this morning in bringing challenge with love. Lord, that seeks the best for people. Lord, we ask that you would help us to be those that challenge one another, but that we do it in a way that people understand that we love them and care for them. Lord, that we wouldn't just challenge people without there being an atmosphere of love, of mutual care and respect, Lord God. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Thanks for listening to this Jubilee Church podcast. Feel free to check out our website at www.jubilee.org.uk and come along on any Sunday morning.